and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon. And we have another excellent guest this week, very much on brand for us in our culture war politics area. He is the Professor of International Security at Exeter University and Senior Advisor to the Legatum Institute. And he's the author of the excellent new book, Against Decolonization, Professor Doug Stokes. Thanks for doing the show. Thank you very much, Nick. Great to be here. And I've just been through your, your book. It's excellent. I think it's going to have a big impact. Uh, annoyingly, it was, it was delayed a little bit in the publication, so I, I haven't ma- managed to read all of it, but I've read an awful lot of it. And I thought we'd just sort of start pretty much at the beginning, because one big thing in, in the book is white privilege and how it doesn't really stack up with the statistics. So you point out here that the, the office of, uh, maybe I should say overall what the book's about. You kind of, you talk about sort of neo-Marxism, post-colonialism, post-modernism, and you kind of go through their arguments and basically debunk them all pretty much by basically letting us hear how these people think and it, with sort of understatement and you kind of just, you know, I would say sort of dismantle them in that way. Uh, and one thing is this thing about white privilege. And, and you, you point out that, uh, that the Office of National Statistics shows that Chinese, Indian and mixed or multiple ethnicity employees all have higher median hourly pay than white British employees, with Chinese employees earning 30.9% more than white British employees. And then later in the book, you talk about, you quote from Teresa Guess, who has this thing called racism by consequence, where she argues that the lead indicators are unequal outcomes between racial groups, differential educational opportunities, and economic differentials. And so what I was thinking was, how do they manage to sustain the narrative of white privilege against all the data? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think that there's multiple things going on here, right? So before we go down that rabbit hole, let's just say, I mean, if you think about it, one of the key ways in which the so-called progressive left or the so-called sort of woke or intersectional, whatever you wish to call them, right, sustain their narrative. And it's a very, very common thing. If you, and Once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. So it's a really useful conceptual device to have in one's mind, right? And that is what they tend to do is they say, well, there's an, out, there's an unequal outcome here, right? So in social science, for example, if you, if you, notice, a, if you notice something and you want to explain that thing, you then look for multiple variables that you can ultimately eliminate to explain the outcome. And what's called a, what that's called a multivariate analysis. Say, for example, you're making a pizza or a cake. Let's say you're, you're doing a birthday cake. You throw in some flour, like you throw it with filling, and put it, and it comes out. It's a disaster, right? Or ordinarily, what you'd do is you'd say, "Well, I put in too much flour, or I put in too much sugar." You'd look for the, the multiple variables that, that go in to explain the failure of that cake, right? So the reason I'm giving that example, so basically, so essentially, so what you tend to have in the intersectional progressive left is they, they spot an outcome of some kind and, and they say this is a differential outcome between uh, an identity group, so, you know, racial group or sexual group or whatever. And then rather than then controlling potential variables that may explain that differential outcome, they basically say that this differential outcome is proof of an underlying system of discrimination of some kind. So in other words, what they do is they carry out, they, 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 they constantly, conceptually, produce a univariate analysis. So, you know, do you see what I mean? So essentially, mm-hmm. essentially there's, there's one variable, and that variable, strangely enough, is always explained by an underlying system of discrimination which proves our political ideology, okay? So, so, so essentially, I think that is, that's, the, if you, that's one of the key ways in which the so-called progressive left advance their ideas in in uh, in the UK. Number one, right, and number two, 
this is also shocking, is that they invariably don't control for demographics. So basically, so if you look, for example, at the population of the UK, it's about 86% uh, white British, right? So, so once you control for, de for, for demographics in terms of outcomes, or once you control for multiple variables uh, to, that may explain differential outcome, then invariably you kind of arrive at very, very different sets, sets of conclusions. And the third thing they do all the time is they ignore all the positive outcomes. So essentially, if there's a differential outcome that's positive, well, that, go, that just goes into a black hole over here. And we'll just put that in that box and ignore that. You just gave one example, right? If you look at the financial and educational outcomes of Indians and East Asians, Chinese and Japanese, they're way higher than the white ethnic average. If, you, if you're taking the intersectional left at their own game, what you'd say, ultimately, because they say a differential outcome is, is indicative, a positive differential outcome is indicative of privilege. So you say, and, and given Chinese and Indians out-earn and out-educate in terms of PhDs and university attendance, etc., the white majority, you'd, according to their ideology, it's not what I'd say for a second, I'm sure you wouldn't say the same, but there'd be Chinese privilege or Indian privilege because there's a, diff a positive differential outcome. You see what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so essentially, once you control for multiple variables, and it's not an underlying conspiracy, control for demographics, basically, and also look at positive uh, outcomes, then the whole thing just kind of sort of falls apart, basically. Um, so did that, did that kind of touch on what you were talking about? Absolutely, yeah. And I remember the phrase multivariate analysis from Jordan Peterson's famous interview with Kathy Newman, where he said that the multivariate analyses have been done because she's looking for a single cause for the gender pay gap in that case, which is patriarchy and can only be that. Obviously, the reality is more complex. But the idea they ignore demographics is utterly insane because the answer is, is always, well, it's an 80-something percent white country. Well, I'll give you an example. So, so basically, so I had uh, some communications with a key EDI consultancy about four years ago. When I was writing some stuff on uh, on um, UK higher education, and I said to him, "So essentially, you're you're sort of saying that UK universities are characterised by innate structural racism, and the way you're proving this is to say, well, there there are kind of more uh, white people employed or more white students in universities than there are black students or, or non-white students or ethnic minorities." But, but, so, and, and they got back and said, yes, until it's 50-50, it's not equal, is it, Doug? I was like, hang on a minute. So, for example, the black population of the UK is 3% of the, of the UK's population. This is, a, you know, 86% of the population are white British. So, so in what universe are you possibly living in where you, you don't... It's a basic social scientific... You have to ultimately control the demographics. Now, if you're living in London, where I'm from originally and you're based there, you, you, you would think that that is kind of reflective of the UK. It's simply not. So you, so you have to control for demographics. Yeah. And that's why we have the phenomenon that winds people up where there's no white people on TV adverts and so on, or in comedy and things like this. And because they're deliberately massively overrepresenting certain demographics, which some people might say is a good thing, but it's, but it's like, you know, well, just admit you're doing it. And then why are they doing it? Well, I think I think I don't think the diversity on TV per se is what winds people up. 
I think what winds people up is the underlying uh, assumptive framework that operationalizes that, that endless kind of over-representation on TV is a specific historical narrative about the, about the UK, basically, right? So in other words, sort of post-George Floyd in particular, there's kind of like this kind of real moral panic around racism and then it operationalizes kind of potted history of slavery, essentially. And, 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 it's, and it's that very garbled, very misapplied, basically wrong narrative about British history and essentially it's a kind of karmic payback how dare you and I think that's what gets people wound up it's not that the necessarily it, 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 it's the kind of the underlying I guess woke assumptive fr historical framework that winds people up because they're doing it for that reason it's basically it's a karmic payback but a karmic payback for their own garbled interpretation of British history yes yeah, because there must be a reason for it. Yeah, exactly. So it's the underlying implied reason. Because yeah. what are they saying? Because, yeah. yeah, it's not that, oh, I can't stand looking at non-white people. But it's, 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 it's like, why, why well, are you well, doing this? It's social engineering well, it's, for what? It's social engineering based on a false uh, uh, and pernicious reading and premise of British history. If yeah. you look at opinion polling, right, again, this is the other thing. You can spend a minute doing this. Look at opinion polling, British UK public opinion polling. It's one of the least racist societies in the world. It is frankly, right? I think uh, the most recent uh, poll was like, um, something like nine, 95% of, you know, of Brits would be happy with their, 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 their daughter or son marrying somebody from an ethnic minority background. And that, the, you know, so, and it goes on and on. The polling is absolutely very, very solid. Now, does that mean that there's no racists anywhere? No, of course not. There's always going to be idiots, right? There's always going to be people like that. No. But, you know, people being horrible, individuals doesn't mean the whole system's rotten do you see what i mean and, and that that is also another conceptual leap that the so-called progressive left always do somebody looked at me the wrong way or somebody said something horrible to me or used a horrible word yes it's disgusting should be condemned we should drive it out no question about that but then to but then to condemn an entire society i mean if you basically broke your finger you wouldn't cut your whole arm off would you or, or kill yourself, because, <laughs> condemn yourself because you've got a broken thing. It's ridiculous, you see what I mean? So that's another thing as well. Essentially, it's like a, a, a isolated incidents suddenly is used sort of to, to, to gain prove as a, a kind of a, an overarching structural framework, which simply doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even with things like the Sewell Report, where it does show that there's no such thing as institutional racism in this country. They just simply deny it and say, you know, Sewell's playing into their hands. He's one of them or, you know, he's kind of whatever the term is at the time. It's sort of he's just a white by other means or whatever, whatever phrase they're using. So they just deny the evidence. Um, another really interesting thing, and I hadn't thought about this as much, was you, you talk about we all we've heard a lot about how left social theory is the kind of origin of wokeness. But one thing I hadn't heard as much about was the 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 way that the left latched onto the global South and what you call this uh, third worldism, and basically Marxism f failed to inspire the proletariat. They realized that working class are not an inherently revolutionary force in the West. It's like oh, be revolutionary, and then they they won't do it because they're inherently patriotic, somewhat sentimental, somewhat attached to aristocratic people in that that kind of symbiotic relationship, and and so they moved on as you explained, to the kind of what you, the global south. And can you elaborate on that? And also, yeah, I mean, also, I'm not sure how well that would work out. Why, why do 
academics and Marx, Marxist academics or neo-Marxist ad- academics want this perpetual revolution, that they have to go looking for it. I mean, is leftism just a sort of virus looking for a new host? Anyway, any thoughts on that? Well, so th- there's a there's a whole like gamut of ideas there right so first and foremost essentially you've got the kind of the the marxist materialist critique of capitalism right which is very interesting i mean i've read a lot of marx german ideology does capital etc interesting stuff right so but and essentially what you had so it's a it's a materialist critique of the in the relations of production within capitalism you know the history right so Essentially, class contradictions will grow and grow and grow, and then the proletariat will be, will be naturally assume class consciousness and overthrow capitalism, bring in a socialism, and then it'll be then the social the state will wither away, and we'll be sat around streams and philosophizing and catching fish, and it'll be a happy utopia. Blah 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 blah. Right. Well, come nine. So obviously, the shock of the rise of fascism and Nazism in Germany, which was one of the most advanced capitalist societies, and therefore where the content in the 1930s and 40s, and therefore where the class contradictions should be strongest. Right was a massive shock to Marxist theorists, okay? And then, and so what you had then is you had a morphing within Marxist theory away from a kind of more materialist, historical materialist, where the contradictions within capitalism would naturally lead to sort of socialism and communism, and that was an objective process. It's historically materialist, right? Materialist critique. So to to then moving to a more cultural uh, perspective, in other words, how do we explain the failure of revolutionary socialist ideas amongst the working class, right? And the way we do this is the culture industries. And you really saw that very strong, and obviously you've heard Antonio Gramsci, basically. And he talked about the, the role of hegemony. And hegemony really is, also, is, is really about how the, the, the kind of the cultural, cultural ideas become you know, sort of dominant. So essentially, cut a long story short, a kind of cultural Marxist critique, the Frankfurt School, basically, so Herbert Marcuse, uh, uh, leaning leaning on Gramsci and other kind of critical theorists, basically took that cultural turn and said, well, that's the way we can explain the continuity and success of capitalism. Basically, working class people are being brainwashed. They're kind of ideological dupes of the system, ultimately. And you have these culture industries that reproduce these ways of being, nationalism and patriotism and, you know, the, the nuclear family, all these kind of like old school bourgeois ideas, basically. So, 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 so that was the critique. Now, obviously, by the 1960s and 70s, the Marxist critique was the, the cultural industry, but also essentially that the working class will, will become ever more miserated, poorer, the life would be crap, you know. And in, and in fact, you know, we, post-war, we entered the golden years of capitalism, really, the big time golden years of capitalism, huge developments. So, you know, compare infant mortality, compare general mortality, compare the quality of life, the quality of material life amongst the Western working class, right? And, and so, so if, if class contradictions and the, uh, are one of the key drivers of, of the future to, to, to bring in so, a socialist society, right? Well, that was kind of like, there were contradictions to some extent, but that was really ameliorated by the, by the material success of the working class. So suddenly you had all these left social theorists, okay, looking around and saying, well, ultimately we want a kind of socialist utopia, we want a socialist revolution, but the white, but the, but the working classes in, in the West, in the Anglophone economies, in, in Europe and in North America, they're, they're, they're not interested in this stuff. So essentially what you then had was you had a movement away from, from the, the, the working class to the global south to and especially in the context of the dissolution of the european empires the french the british empires were falling apart anti-colonial post-colonial independence movements 
then also in the context of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, basically, which committed itself to supporting wars of national liberation. So Khrushchev, for example, in the 50s, I think it was early 60s, said that the Soviet Union would support these wars. So suddenly you had this kind of move away from the Western working class, which was seen as kind of like a dead duck. They're not interested in our ideas. And a transference of that to the uh to, to the global south and to the tumult and then you know very and in various instances they, they succeeded so cuba the various national insurgent nationalist insurgencies which were ultimately shunted into the soviet soviet sphere of influence and became sort of socialist ultimately so you know cuba is an obvious example but the other you know el salvador nicaragua Gango, you know, various insurgencies in Africa. Do you see what I mean? So essentially, the non-white, the non-European world was seen as the sort of the revolutionary site of resistance against imperialism and capitalism, the Palestinians, etc. And this is the great hope for humanity: is these people that will throw off the shackles of religion, will throw off the shackles of Islam, will throw off the shackles of uh, feudalism, ultimately, and usher in a kind of secular Marxist socialist future utopia where ultimately these intellectuals will lead this thing and then they'll wither themselves away and we'll be sat around sipping sipping pina coladas on the beach somewhere and clinking you know the the the, the global proletariat yeah yeah whereas to me a revolution of the global south doesn't necessarily sound like it will be great for academics in the west i mean i'm not I, in, in reality but that's what they that's what they think as you pointed out there um and do you have do you have any sort of sympathy then for sort of OG Marxism when you you talk about Brexit, for example, as a symbolic class war? So is the problem that was is it just that Marxism was the problem, or is is it the problem of how it shifted to post structuralism and and then post modernism? Was the whole thing just bad? I, I have I don't I I mean I think that Marxism as a as a philosophical framework is interesting intellectually. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Marx is a very interesting thinker, but as a, as a kind of a roadmap to uh, a kind of future, it's an absolute disaster, massive disaster. Uh, and I think if, if you think about the 20th century, right, it's on a meta level. What were two biggest disasters of the 20th century in terms of human suffering on a massive scale. Well, the, the most obvious was, one was Nazi Germany, right? Where you had the industrialized racism of the Nazi regime and the, the Holocaust and the, the kind of the sweep across East Europe, the Eisensgruppen, the, the mass murder of that regime, right? And the, the world from that basically concluded rightly that racism is something that shouldn't belong in a civilized society. Anti-Semitism should not belong in any society, and we have to resist that. And that's become a very dominant part of our culture. Right? The other massive disaster was the, impo the imposition of uh, equal outcomes, basically, by uh, communist regimes. Okay, where an enlightened intellectual intelligentsia, who got the the, the kind of the, the, the holy secular writ basically will take power, assume power, and then they'll impose equality on all humankind. Right? You'll all live in little boxes, you'll be taken care of by the state. And then where did that lead? Mass murder, mass famine. I mean, in Mao's Cultural Revolution alone basically killed 45 million people died. If you read Frank Dakota's fantastic book on the Cultural Revolution, I mean, that's like a 
leading academic tome on that, Frank Dakota, The Cultural Revolution, looks at the Chinese archives. 45 million people died in about six years. Mass famine, yeah? Soviet Union gulags. Now, I think in our, in our society, we've, we've, we've rightly learned about the dangers of industrialized racism, but the imposition of equality of outcomes or equity by enlightened progressive elites, as we saw in the Soviet Union, and we, you know, that has not been hardwired into our cultural DNA. Do you see what I mean? So it's like we've learnt one lesson, but we don't seem to have learnt the other lesson. And in many ways, we're seeing, I mean, you know, instances of this constantly. You look at some of the stuff. I mean, do you see what I mean? So. So I think Marxism as a framework, I've read a lot of Marx in my time, interesting, no doubt about that. It's got some interesting stuff to say, but as a roadmap for human liberation, as a roadmap to some, it's an absolute disaster. And I think, you know, we need to be really cognizant of that and have that much, much stronger in our cultural DNA. Yeah, and people like Jordan Peterson have said, the right has answered when the right goes too far, but the left needs to answer when does the left go too far. And we can have things like Diane Abbott on a mainstream BBC One show say Mao on balance did more yeah. good than harm. And she's yeah. not cancelled, she just carries mm. on as normal, which is unbelievable. The only reason I asked about Marx is because some people on the anti-woke side, for instance, the people that spiked, still seem to be quite fond of Marxism in, in some way. So I just thought... Of well, there's an interesting side point there as well. And that is, uh, I just did a long, really a mega long tweet about the professional managerial class, right? And that there is an action, there is actually a developing, interesting intellectual fusion between uh, the conservative elements of the conservative right, basically, in terms of their critique of globalization, corporatism, etc., uh, and and especially also to a, an appealing to the working class, right? You, you think like J.D. Vance and elements of even the you know there are elements in the Republican right, but also in the conservative right. You're seeing now basically, and, and the reaffirmation of the nation state and the reaffirmation of communities, basically, and also a critique of globalization as well on the conservative right. Michael Lynn, for example, has done some really interesting work on this, and then and but and also on the what you just called the OG Marxist left as well, and and I think spiked spiked kind of interesting. They're kind of in that. I'd, I'd sort of say I, sort of, sort of libert, almost like libertarian Marxists, if you if you know what I mean. They're kind of like so they're, they're part of that interesting groove where there are elements from OG Marxism in terms of the critique of capitalism and globalization, neoliberalism, which you also see on the conservative right too as well, basically. And I think uh, and I think how you reconcile those two elements, especially with on the right, with the kind of more Hayekian. Kind of pro-market approach, basically. I think that reconciliation of speaking to the working class and that critique of globalization and neoliberalism on developing on the right, Deneen, Lind, uh, the NatCons as well. You, I mean, that, 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 that you saw a lot of that from the Na National Conservative Conference. That that critique of globalization and, and corporate capitalism and, and how it can undermine social cohesion and the nation state and communities. And reconciling that with that more pro-market Hayekian logic as well and in terms of driving innovation and then how that sits with the state, I think that will be the key axis around which the new right or the, the centre right will have to move itself in the next five to ten years. That will be a key intellectual axis. So do you think that the sort of Bannon-esque economic nationalism will prevail over mm -hmm. the sort of what Eric Kaufman calls the 
business liberals of the Tory party who are more Thatcherite? Well, I think in some ways uh, we are going in that direction anyway, because it, it in just in terms of the structural the, the structural forces within the global economy, and I think that the, the pandemic really really threw that up in sharp relief, basically because questions about national security, but also global supply chains, etc., are becoming increasingly prevalent in in the way in which we structure our political economies. Think, for example, at PPE. So we've had a global last forty years or so. We've had globalization, near a neoliberal global economy, just in time economics, blah blah blah, right? But but when the I can't swear on this thing, but when the fit hits the shan, basically, then it's a family show, I presume. When the fit hits the shan, <laughs> yeah. When the fit hits the shan, basically, then we do go into a more mercantilist uh, economy. I, French, the French want the PPE. We're going to bid more for it. We're going to bid more, you know, blah 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 blah. Right, yeah. So. So those national, the national security concerns and those kind of uh, and the bifurcation of the global economy into what we're seeing now post Ukraine as well, onshoring, friendshoring. The U.S. is doing a lot. Of this. The Biden administration has been doing a lot of this basically in terms of trying to encourage, and as did Trump, this kind of more economic. So, so what we're seeing, I think, is a bifurcation in the global economy, increasingly moving away from a China-centric manufacturing. There's still a lot, huge amount going on, huge amounts of FDI. But those concerns are still are now beginning to really sort of, sort of inculcate themselves more in the way in which we do business ultimately. Yeah, I was going to ask later because it's more to do with the last part of your book. But do you think would Brexit even matter if we're going to be in this new arrangement that you predict at the end of your book, where we're going to have sort of different trading partners, less globalized world, supply chain issues, less contact with China? So my thing was, I was like, oh, does it even matter that we did this big exit from Europe? Because now we're going to have to be trading with them in a completely sort of new world. What do you think? Well, I think that, that there's multiple ways you can you can look at it, basically. I think that um, Brexit, I, I think, was about uh, kind of, obviously, it wasn't just about trade per se, it was It was mainly, it was about national sovereignty, right? So essentially, it's, it's about, it's also about a principle, ultimately, about who governs, ultimately. So it was a rejection of, of supranationalism, and it was an affirmation of national sovereignty and, and national democracy, ultimately, you have to write to make your own laws, you have different opinions on that, obviously. But, but, but so if the question is, ultimately, that does, does the new trading arrangement or the potential uh, trading arrangements within the global economy render Brexit moot. Well, I, I don't think it. I don't think it does. I think that. I think the you know the 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 ramifications of Brexit will will, will play out over many many decades. Uh, and I think that if 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 you get it right in terms of tweaking of regulations. Deregulating in certain areas. Now, when, when people hear that, they think, "Oh, suddenly we're going to th throw kids up chimneys and you know, and eat, eat like super organic." That, does, that doesn't mean that at all. But but it does mean kind of moving away from ideally an overly kind of statist, over-regulated uh, uh, regime where we can allow human agency and in, in innovation to flourish. And I think that's really really important. You know and even even if you sort of stick to the to the European the EU uh, uh, sort of political economy, I mean there are massive contradictions in it. So, for example, if you take Germany out ultimately of of the EU or the, the European economy, EU economy, 
what have you got left? I mean, you, you do have a kind of series of largely quite sclerotic, uh, overly statist uh, uh, political economies. So, so I think I think there is a value in nimbleness. I think there is a value in kind of to, to an extent some some degree of deregulation. And then then there's the principle of it as well, right? Which is about ultimately about national sovereignty. So so even on just on principle grounds, I mean so that's important. Um, so I think I, does that that kind of answer the question. I mean, yeah. that sort of yeah, it was a side it was a sidetrack anyway. It was just something that occurred to me when I when I was mm. based on what we were talking about a, a minute ago. But the the main thrust of the book I wanted to continue with was that we've talked about the neo-Marxist and their attempt to sort of utilize the global South to carry on their revolution. And then you talk about the, the post-modernists uh, and this sort of post-structuralist and all this. And this, the, this idea that the world does not present itself to us unmediated, rather the social ideas we hold actively shape the world itself. This kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's post-structuralist or what, what you call it. But um. How do we how do we reckon with that as a as a sort of counter critique to that? So I had Carl Benjamin on the show and he talked about something he called postmodern traditionalism, where he was saying roughly that he acknowledges the radical subjectivity that the world is mediated through our lived experience, whatever you want to say. But he was saying, well, then, and that you every person is valid, you know, their own valid world perception. There's no objective truth and universalist worldview and all this kind of thing then he was saying but then by your own terms you have to then recognize the english as our own group for example with our own tribal gods as he called them free speech fairness and so on fair play cricket whatever it might be and saying that you have to recognize us on your own terms is that a valid critique or how do we deal with this sort of radical subjectivity well the, the way the way i deal with it and the way i try and i sort of go over it in the book is I, I make I make an argument for the uh, what I call ontological realism. So for your listeners now, we have to get a little bit philosophical, but it's worth doing a little bit of that because it's it's a really really important point, right? And I, I've been sort of suffused in a lot of these kind of theories for for decades, uh, basically. So let, let me give you my take on it, right? So essentially the critique of uh, the postmodernists and post-structuralists is that there's no such thing as objective truth, right? And so, so they place primacy in what's called epistemology, how we know what we know, theories of knowledge, right? And, and what they ultimately argue for is a fundamentally subjectivist epistemology or, or what we can call a social constructivist epistemology. And what that essentially means is that, that uh, our ways of seeing the world are fundamentally subjective. So in the book, I give the example. <clears throat> if you're driving along in your car and you see a red light, it means stop. If you see a green light, it means go, right? And, and, and so, but, so that example shows there's, there's nothing objective about red meaning stop or uh, objective about green meaning go. But what, what we're doing there is we're inhabiting a shared intersubjective cultural script, which we all agree upon, right, basically, which is entirely subjective. Okay, so 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 essentially, and and so then then that structures sets of relationships, sets of power relationships, and sets of a kind of a social grammar around what is a sub subjective interpretation. So essentially, what the postmoderns, post-structures, post-colonialists do is they 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 place primacy on that, and they say that ultimately exhausts human and culture. That 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 that's kind of that, that's the be all and end all. And so so when so when you occupy that philosophical position. You can really begin to see how uh, elements of the culture war, so-called culture war, have really, have really taken off. 
most notably, for example, in the trans debate. Yeah. So essentially, if it's all subjective and all power is ult- and, and, and all knowledge is ultimately sets of differential truths, then all all social interactions ultimately sets of uh, subjective truths battling each other all the time, right? And so material reality doesn't exist. So if I say that I'm a woman, although I'm a biological man, I am a woman, right? Do you see what I mean? So, so essentially you can begin to see how that social constructivism really then has escaped the campus and really then sort of becomes suffused within broader culture. Now, what's the way out of that? So Carl Benjamin, I, I've not seen that episode or listened to it, but so he's got his take on it. So what I do in the book is I argue for uh, ontological realism. Now, what does that mean? This is where it gets a little bit complicated, but I hope your listeners can stay with me, right? So basically, it places primacy on the world as it exists, yeah? So in other words, it's, it, epistemology is a theory of knowledge, but ontology is a theory of what, what is, what exists, okay? And it says that because a world does exist independently of our subjective knowledge of it, right, it creates a limit on what's rational and what's not. So, for example, you may have some people whose truth is if I flap my arms, I can fly, right? But no matter how hard they try to do that, if they jump off a 10-story building, they flap their little arms as, as quickly as they possibly can, they'll never fly. In other words, because of the ontological reality of gravity, they're going to they're go plop every single time. Do you see what mm-hmm. I mean? So because of the mind-independence existence of the world, it creates a limit on our subjective understandings of it. So I can say I'm a woman as a trans person, right? But because of the uh, biological reality of chromosomes and sex-based differences, and this is why Kathleen Stock's book, I guess, was called, um, you know, why reality matters. She's ultimately placing uh, an emphasis on on ontological realism, right? Biology matters. And biology is independent of our understandings of it. So, So this is how we join it up then. So, I'm within ontological realism, scientific realism. You're not rejecting subjective sub- subjectivity, or everything is ultimately epistemologically relativist, right? But because the world exists independently of us, we can come some explanations of the world. Gravity exists are better and, and are better than others because of the mind independence nature of the world. Okay. So essentially, it's a scientific fact that gravity exists. And now, what you think about, you can fly or not fly, or whatever, the fact is that, that that is the way it is. The reality matters. So, final point. Ontological realism is, is, is an escape mechanism from the endless cycle of, of endless forms of intersubjective meaning. It creates a boundedness to our understandings of the social world, right? Carl's right insofar as he's an epistemological relativist. We can never understand the world completely unmediated from our interpretations. But because the world exists independently of us, we have to rationally adjudicate what best explains that independent existence. The final point is this. There's a big difference between epistemological relativism, i.e. we acknowledge there are different ways of seeing the world, but judgmental rationalism and ontological realism means that there are some better ways of understanding the world and some are just simply wrong. There's a big difference between that position, epistemological relativism, and what's called judgmental rationalism, uh, relativism, 
which is at the heart of the social constructivist and the kind of the wokery. And judgmental relativism says there's no such thing as truth. It doesn't have a theory of ontology or reality exists. And all judgments are ultimately relative to each other. And so it rejects morality. You, can't, you can never judge anybody else. You can never judge any other culture. Everything just floats out there in a free-form way. And when you have judgmental relativism as the primary uh, moral good of a society, you go like a blamange. You, be you begin to see then how institutions, when they adopt that ph philosophy, and they may not do it consciously, but that is, is what they're doing, they collapse. Because how can we possibly judge? Everything's true. Everybody's got an opinion. And it just kind of free floats out there. So if you do that free of ontological reality, then you end up in this blamange wokery where things just all moral authority, everything collapses into sort of insubjective subjectivity and nobody's truth, man. Everybody's, yeah, let's just uh, free flow. And that's a, that's a re recipe for social chaos and disaster ultimately. Yeah. And I suppose you could arrive theoretically at a point where if the torturer or serial killer enjoys what he's doing, why is that, you know, why, did, why is the person suffering? Why does that trump their enjoyment of it? Could you, can you even arrive at something like that? Well, I think in maybe a twist, a twisted way, uh, you, you could potentially do that. I mean, you'd have to be a bit of a sadist, but but one could say, well, uh, so for example, you think about it, like it, throughout human history, there have been numerous societies, uh, even today, that where sadism is at the heart of it. So, for example, in the book, I go over the Dahomey Empire. You see, you've seen that the movie recently? Did you see that? It was uh, I can't remember. It was a um, did you see that movie? It was the the, 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 the Queen, the, I can't remember what it was called, but basically it was a big Hollywood movie big by a black, black, black... I know the one uh, you mean. Block. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called though, right? Celebrating the Dahomey Empire. So it was a, basically, it was, a, it was a kingdom in in uh, Nigeria. It was a black slave kingdom, very sophisticated, had a big bureaucracy. All of it. it was fundamentally based on, um, on slavery. And every year, what they would do ultimately, would they would, they would murder... They'd have the, the, the festival of Dahomey. I talk, talk about it in the book, basically. And I think in sometime, sometime in the 1700s, they, they, they kind of gathered about 4,000 black slaves. They're a black kingdom, captured from other tribes, and just murdered them. It was a celebration of the, the primacy and supremacy of the Dahomey kingdom. Now, within that kind of judgmental relativism, well, who are you to say? I mean, within their framework or within their culture, who are you to say it? You know, do, do you see what I mean? Do, do you see how you, you can then begin? You collapse into the, the totally uh, noble idea of, of human equality in, and, and it kind of leads itself into sort of judgmental relativism where basically you can't judge anything anymore, ultimately. Who are you to judge? T to judge, in fact, is imperialist, it's colonialist, it's kind of white supremacist, it's based on your own like uh, supremacist framework and who the hell are you to judge? We'll judge you big time. But you can't. You, 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 if you are from the the oppressor class of whatever, you you are not allowed a judgment. So that judgmental relativism, drawn from post structuralism, post modernism, it's fundamental to the kind of the infection, if you will, of British institutions and American institutions. Yeah, and speaking of judgment, I'm pretty sure that was the movie where they had to uh, fix the Rotten Tomatoes reviews because they were so bad. Yeah, and they, that's the they, one. <laughs> they gave it these fake reviews. And now we yeah, can't trust yeah. Rotten Tomatoes anymore. Well, 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 but, but, the irony, but the irony of that is that, that, is that it's about Dahomey, right, which is a very interesting uh, kingdom in, 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 uh, in what, was, what is now Nigeria, right? But it was fundamentally, it was an expansionist, colonialist, slave-based black 
kingdom. It was an incredibly interesting society, but it was funded, you know, warlike, highly aggressive. Uh, and yet this is a Hollywood movie was, was a celebration of it. Uh, a celebration of it. It was, it was a yes, very, queen. very odd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, it was very, very, very odd. This is, this is a kingdom that basically committed like mass atrocities against other black tribes. But it was sort of, it's a sort of, it was celebrated. You can go on and on. I mean, I, I cover quite a lot of this in the book, in, in, the, in the chapter on history, you know, the Sokoto Caliphate, Dahomey, you know, Zanzibar, Tipu Tip. I mean, the biggest slave in human history, I think about 10, 15,000 slaves in Afro Amani slaver on Zanzibar. I mean, mass slavery. But there you go. Yeah. And, and when you were talking about all those theories, the sort of Foucault type theories, and you were, you were positing your response to them. I just sort of think you have to be very clever to come up with something that stupid. You know, the, the, the ordinary people with common sense can figure out there's some kind of objective reality. I remember reading Baudrillard and thinking, this is just bollocks. And I think that is the best answer mm. to it, that you have to come up with a more rigorous answer than that. But, um, but, it, uh, but the, in the book, you seem to reserve the most, well, the, the, the idea that seems to be even more dangerous. We have sort of the post-Marxism, we have the post-modernism kind of fit, tying in with that later. And then we have... The sort of what seems most dangerous in the book is, is post-colonialism, because as, as you point out here, quoting Hutchin, post-colonialism seeks to move beyond the post-modern limits of deconstructing existing orthodoxies into the realms of social and political action. And obviously that's where it gets even worse, because you have these people like Barbara, if you say, or Hambra, I don't know if you pronounce that name, it, who says it becomes difficult to turn away from the Western University as a key site through which colonialism and colonial knowledge in particular is produced, consecrated, institutionalized, and naturalized. And essentially their idea is that, you've, we've also got this idea from Shilliam, um, where it's that the, the political class look upon the changes in Britain's uh, population pyramid with trepidation. And so um, the, the point is here that the, the, the universities are seen as kind of exporters of colonialism, and then, and sort of deeply racist, and that we fear the changes in, in, the, in the demographics of Britain. But as you sort of rightly point out, the political elites are responsible for the liberal immigration regime that's changing this, these demographics. And yet the, these theorists will have us believe that they're simultaneously racist and afraid of these changes. So anyway, any, any comment on that? Well, again, essentially, I just think that if you... If you... I don't see how you can possibly sustain that kind of argument, that kind of post-colonial argument, or that uh, British uh, political elites look at trepidate, look with great trepidation and fear as as the UK becomes uh, more diverse and it has more ethnic minorities in it. Uh, or, I mean, it's 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 a to sustain that argument. You, you would have to ultimately uh, uh, explain how every single uh, uh, government has allowed increasingly more mass immigration into the country, basically, right? Um, uh, the idea that universities are hotbeds of white supremacy uh, and sort of colonial ways of knowledge, again, it's, it's just an absolute fantasy. I mean, the universities, for a start, are almost uniformly very kind of like left, liberal left, number one. And so the idea that these kind of liberals, left-wingers, progressives, 
Marxist far left are kind of unreconstructed, basically almost like quasi-fascists. I just don't know how you how you could possibly sustain that argument. I mean, I mean, I think that and, and, uh, it that it's just it, it's a fantasy. Then then you look at the kind of the staffing in universities again. I mean, in terms of, again, if you, in terms of demographics, that basically there's an overrepresentation on a per, per capita demographic basis of uh, ethnic minority staff. Same in the student body. Huge numbers of international students come here from all over. I mean, most of my most of my a lot of my PhD students are from Nigeria. I get loads of applications. Most of my PhD students are all from from the global south, you know, Pakistan, India, from the Islamic world, Nigeria, and and, and coming in, in huge numbers to learn. So, I, I, so it, it's a kind of fantasy. It's a but it's one that you can kind of assert because the the dominant ideology. Uh, the dominant way of being in British academia, in academia in general, is very left, left liberal. It is. It, ju- it just is. I mean, data shows it. You know. So that's it. So essentially, that's that's the kind of the assumptive meta frameworks ultimately. Yeah, it sort of reminded me a little bit of the Church of England calling, saying to Calvin Robinson, "No, you don't understand. We are institutionally racist." And he's going, "I don't think you are." It's kind of like the universities; they're deeply racist. They're colonial, and no matter how much post-colonialism they do, they sort of remain inherently colonial. And they they can't possibly deconstruct it. Well, 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 yeah, but, but but then what what is the basis of this claim? I mean, essentially, if you're uh, in in our in our in our, in, in the UK, right? Racism is the is 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 the preeminent sin that one can commit. Anybody uttering and, and racism now is so broadly defined. So, for example, in the book, I, I look at microaggressions, right? So, thankfully, we've driven out over racism. Okay, go back fifty years was 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 racism absolutely far more common, far more overt, and thankfully, we managed to sort of drive that out to, to, to a large extent. But now, a lot of these people basically sustain their arguments by looking for these demons in these these kind of un, basically unconscious spaces. That's 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 the way they they sustain the argument. So, for example, microaggressions is a major kind of uh, uh, entrepreneurial, moral entrepreneurialism on the part of basically uh, activists, race grifters, and kind of uh, EDI consultancies that want to make money from universities that want to pay them quite a lot of money to come in and look for these microaggressions, right? So, so, so I, I go over it in the book. I'll give an example of a microaggression. This is this is how far it's gone now, right? So a, a microaggression is characterised by a, a lecturer's body body language and demeanour. So the way a lecturer stands, basically, if you turn your back, this is an actual example given by the EHRC in 2019. Okay, the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, which are responsible for the for policing the Equality Act, which governs basically public sector institutions through the public sector equality duty, right? The EHRC published this report, basically desperate to show racism in the UK. They struggled extraordinarily hard, couldn't really find it, but they said there's nonetheless there's loads of microaggressions. What constitutes a microaggression? A racist microaggression? The way a body language, a, a body lecturer's language and demeanour. Uh, another example I've, I've used, I've spoken about this before. For example, another example they actually give in in these reports, which then are taken by university bureaucrats and push through this EDI so-called anti or basically neo-racist agenda about white privilege and white and structural privilege, blah, blah, blah. Another example they give in, in, in the EHRC reports, 
is a, a, a black student was in a lift, a white student went to get in the lift, changed the man, went down the stairs, and a black student interpreted that as racism. They, they saw a black student in the lift, the white student didn't want to come in because, it, they're, because they're black, so therefore it's coded. So you see what I mean? So essentially what's happening here is you're having the subject, the endless subjectification uh, of sort of a motivated reasoning and emotional reasoning where because I feel it, because I feel it's racist, it is racist, and therefore it's evidence of racism, and therefore we have to undergo fundamental institutional change to drive out these hidden forms of covert uh, uh, racism, basically. Yeah, and when we spoke to when I spoke to Eric Kaufman on this show, he he cited anti-racism in the U.S. the anti-racism movement as a sort of primary origin of wokeness, as far as I could tell. Whereas you sort of acknowledge it in the book, but perhaps it's it's not you sort of have other causes as well. It's sort of one of, of the various, this kind of matrix of bad ideas. But, um, you, and you quote Candy Andrews, who, in, in regards to whiteness, which he says is a, induces a form of psychosis framed by its irrationality, which is beyond any rational engagement. So basically whiteness as mental illness. There's one minor irony, well, go on. He's just bought a book out called "The Psychosis of Whiteness." Oh, there you he's go. kind of doing the media. He's doing the media around. It's published by Penguin, basically. So, and and, and so he, he's actually a, a, a professor in education, which is an interesting subject anyway. So he's not a historian. He's not you know whatever. But but so but but so he just bought out a book. I've not read the book yet. But but the the he, he's built on the controversy of I think it's twenty sixteen. He did this. It's kind of an absolutely ridiculous article, and it, 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 that's the nature of the beast. But basically, yeah. So, so in in that article, he, he says that whiteness, whatever this thing called whiteness is, is a psychosis, uh, essentially. So, white people are psychotic. Whiteness is psychotic. Ultimately, can't be reasoned with, but but ultimately, you, you can use these are kind of almost direct quotes. You can use uh, whiteness to sort of ultimately guilt trip white people into becoming an ally to the oppressed people of the world uh basically i mean it's it, it, anyway so so that that's his position basically yeah and, and i suppose they might claim it's it's not it's not white people it's whiteness the concept and so we're all supposed to be not offended um one there's two things i wanted to point out one one is a minor irony that you you cite foucault in the book mm. saying that um as an example of subjectivity and sort of he says he cites that, that um mental illness was seen as something quite uh, interesting and deep and they might have access to secret knowledge and they should sort of be respected. Then it changed to, we should confine them in asylums. I was thinking, well, if white people are, uh, are just mentally ill, well, well, maybe we've got secret deep knowledge according to Foucault. But anyway, that was just a sort of juxtaposition of things in the book. But the other thing I wanted to say as well, yeah, this idea of we, you're supposed to become an ally and sort of you denounce whiteness and all this, you sort of do wonder what's in it for us. And I, I do notice that if you... If you assert Western values and say, no, actually, these are better and we shouldn't deconstruct ourselves and hate ourselves, that's the worst crime in this society. And if you notice the Proud Boys, whatever you think to the Proud Boys, they're currently being given incredibly brutal sentences in the United States, like 18 years in jail and so on. And one interesting thing about them is they say that they're Western chauvinists, just meaning that they have an overt expressed preference for Western values in this sort of technical definition of the word chauvinist. I was thinking, isn't that the worst thing you can be now in this? We're supposed to denounce ourselves and become allies of something that's explicitly calls us mental and is out to destroy us. Whereas surely, what, what's moral about that and what's right about that, about turning on the West and ourselves? 
Well, exactly. I completely agree. I mean, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the idea that, that a, a, a civilization or a culture or a state uh, can't exist or has to beg for its right to exist, uh, all based, by the way, on a kind of very pernicious and bizarre reading of, of, of British history. I mean, essentially, where it all goes back to is transatlantic slavery. Um, I don't know of any other country apart from America which fought a civil war. 650,000 people died in that war to end uh, southern slavery. I don't know many other societies like Britain, which are kind of as a result of, to some extent, external slave results, but mainly because of a domestic abolitionist movement, sort of unilaterally designed to, to, to do away with the horror of, of slavery, ultimately. So it, was, it was a feature of about 200 years of British history. Essentially, the dominant narrative is slavery didn't exist anywhere. Brits came along and suddenly they took, for 200 years, they took black slaves uh, and essentially uh, and sort of started to slave. Complete and utter nonsense. So again, the book goes over that. I mean, it, for a start, the Arab slave trade was, was across Africa for much longer than the European slave trade. Intra-African slavery was ubiquitous, still is in some, some parts of Africa. Essentially, just like Europe, Africa was, was characterized by tribal, mass tribal warfare. And when you dominate and ultimately defeat another tribe, the, you get the booty uh, from bounty from, you know, whatever. And you enslave, you know, you take the women and you enslave, enslave them as well, enslave the women and the men. It's a kind of, it's awful, it's terrible, but that's, a, you know, so intra-black slavery, I just spoke about earlier on, the, 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 the homey kingdom, it was a slave kingdom. The Sokoto Caliphate was a mass slave kingdom, about two and a half million black slaves on the on the plantation there. The idea that you know, and then, and then obviously you had the abolition of of, of, the, of the transatlantic slave trade and the abolition of slavery across the colonies, and you had a, a whole sets of naval wars launched by the Brits to end other European slave uh, slave slavery, plus also black slave black kingdoms trade. So how did Dahomey? Uh, this kind of Hollywood movie, how did it end its slave trade? It was basically a naval blockade and a naval barrage on the behalf of the British to stop it. So, so, so essentially, so what we've got ultimately is ubiquitous slavery throughout human history. White slaves taken by the Barbary slaves, the states, Ottoman slavery. The irony is this, right? If you walk around London, you see an East European. East Europeans, in terms of, I think, the scale of it, were just as likely, if not more than more than likely, to descend from slaves or you know, have that scarring in, on their society than Afro-Caribbeans. I mean, the Ottoman, the Ottoman slave empire existed across the large chunks of Eastern Europe for centuries. And which, uh, the, 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 the Slav, Slavic peoples, with, with Hungarians, the Bulgarians, the Serbs, were taken and, you know, uh, taken and trafficked into the Middle East and, and the, the Arab slave markets, basically. It was a, it was a massive uh, thing. So essentially, my point is, slavery is an evil. It's a wrong. Britain abolished it as it should after 200 years, then drove it out, uh, among, drove it out of Brazil, helped suppress the Portuguese and Spanish uh, slave trade, ultimately ended many slaving kingdoms in Africa itself. Wasn't loads of uh, evil colonialists running around Africa enslaving people? Basically, invariably, you'd pull up to slave ports and 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 buy slaves from a pre-existing slave trade, intra-African slave trade, basically. 
You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so that that's the complex history of it. So, so the idea that in 2023 we should deconstruct ourselves, decolonize ourselves, get on our knees and beg for our right to exist in all of, all of our diversity that we have in this country is a ridiculous thing. It's utterly ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And there was one quite funny example before I move on from this topic where you point out that it, one of the most extensive studies on race in the UK tracked 40,000 households, 10,000 of which were ethnic minority individuals polled for their opinions. It found that ethnic minorities in Britain identify more strongly with Britishness than their white counterparts. <coughs> and this was, this was quite funny. Uh, this was, uh, that's not the exact quote I wanted, actually. There's another one where, where Pakistani Muslims think of themselves staunchly as British. That's the one I wanted, but it's the same thing. And what was ironic about that to me is that the left were looking for a, a revolutionary working class. They didn't find it, so they pivoted to race instead. And now... The, the, the non-white, diverse race, races, whatever you want to call them, don't go along with it either and call themselves British and patriotic. So it's like, ah, oh, foiled again. And in actual fact, those people might, might even see class as still primary, ironically, to race. They might say, I'm British and working class or something. So they, they sort of can't win the left wherever, they, wherever their idea goes. It's rejected. Well, again, it's this, it's this very odd and patronising worldview where uh, non-white peoples will just be naturally left-wing and progressive. Uh, and also, within this kind of decolonial de- critique, again, it's kind of oddly narcissistic because it's there is a narcissism. And Pascal Bruckner's brilliant book really did, really did this, basically, where he talks about the kind of European narcissism whereby... Um, uh, by saying we're the most evil, we're that we're we've committed these terrible sins. What you're actually doing is you're you're again turning uh, world history in all its complicated forms, its hierarchical forms, other slave societies, other incredible civilizations. You're kind of doing away with that. You're erasing that agency, that human agency, and that will. The fact that other states had their own interests or their own histories. You're erasing it all and saying, "Oh, but we're the ones. We're the we're the baddies." Look at us. We all at home. We, do you see what I mean? So there is a very, very odd kind of narcissism to it, really. There is a very odd, especially when you think about it in the, in the sort of current geopolitical dispensation that we're in. So, for example, the, you know, we, have, we do have real strains in, in the international system, world order. A rising China, well, that's going a bit wobbly, but nonetheless, China is still very dominant and very strong. It's not exactly a liberal democracy, really. You've got Russia in Ukraine. You've got bubbling insurgencies in the Middle East. You see what I mean? So essentially, where we are in the West isn't necessarily natural. It's not always going to be. We're not always going to be sat here as, as, as the kind of dominant baddies. You know, we're the bad. We've got, we've got to have to deconstruct. We have to un- unnabble ourselves. We have to beg for our right to exist and get on our knee. We're sorry. Um, mea culpa, basically. In the context of other rising civilizational states, that are also pushing that very same narrative in the global south. So Russia and China are running all over the global south saying, join with us, come with us, we'll give you money and debt, and we'll gang up against these evil imperialists. You know, the, the kind of the, the Yankee, the unipolar system, the kind of, they're, they're imposing their values, they're colonialist. You look at the lot, I cover it in the book, but you look at the lot of language carried out by uh, uh, Russia and China now, they're really pushing that decolonial, post-colonial narrative amongst the global south. Now, you know, are they going to be 
kind of you know sit on a, on the beach with, the, with them and sipping pint in the kind of utopian future. I don't think you are. No, yeah, that's a good point. That yeah, Putin has used that sort of. Well, he's used both, hasn't he? He's used the kind of leftist language of of colonialism and oh, the colonial West, but he's also used language to appeal to the right of like oh, the transgender stuff they're doing in the West. And then if we're not careful, we can yeah. get sucked into listening to that, and we can you know China can come in and, and manipulate us. And I was reading that part of the book thinking, yeah, I should make sure I don't go too much down that conservative rabbit hole of saying, oh, Putin's got a point. You know what I mean? That, that can be a, yeah, you can't, that can be dangerous because, yeah, they're finding new ways to destabilize us. I mean, that's sort of skipping to the end a little bit, but I, I did, that is a huge part of the book. Is, is it where, where are we going to go given we're, we're doing our best to deconstruct and undermine ourselves while the world, as you say, is, is reforming? Like you say, China, okay, they've got the low birth rates, they've got some problems, India's looking very strong. And yet, and, and we have no self-confidence. And we, you sort of talk about how, how can we possibly make policy when we don't even know who we are? How can we enter the world stage when we can't even agree what we are? I'm paraphrasing because I can't find the quote. Where do you see that going? You, you sort of talk about it's not, it's not obvious if we deconstruct this. It's not natural that we have this liberal order... <coughs> Where, where does it go when we deconstruct this? I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that uh, if, I, if I was in China and I was a Chinese strategist and I was thinking about the long game here, you know, 100, 200 years, a long kind of cycle ultimately, right? I, I would think to myself, what I would say, I don't want to go to war with the West. Right? Wars can do terrible things, nobody can, especially two you know, nuclear-armed powers, it's not going to end well. But it doesn't, you know, they, they do seem to be going down this really odd line uh, of kind of decadence and sort of almost deconstructing themselves. You, you look at like, this is what we want to try and avoid in the UK. You look at the US and it's become incredibly tribal over there, really, really tribal along kind of these kind of fracture, cultural fracture, fracture points, right? And so I don't I don't know how well that what what that how well that portends for domestic stability and social cohesion going forward, and then how that then speaks to the capacity of a civilization uh, to uh, remain confident in itself. Basically, a prerequisite to exist is ultimately some degree of will to exist. Some, you, you have to have a will to power. You have to have a, a, a self a, a self belief, a self confidence. If you de deconstruct yourself, and everything kind of goes into sort of judgmental relativist blamange, basically, where we can't judge anybody else, that doesn't mean that other other civilization states are going to do that. They're not. They they have belief in themselves. They know what they want, right? They have a very strong civilizational purpose. And no matter how, it's the other fantasy of a lot of left left wingers. I think they think if if we kind of like make them right noises and we kind of just be you know liberate they'll, they'll love us we'll, we'll be forgiven and you know that is not how human uh societies work unfortunately you know you have to actively uh fight against tribalism and that that's why also you know you, you have to kind of try to resist that so i think that um we are on a sort of slightly dangerous path now where western civilization UK seems to become obsessed by questions of identity and and tribalism, and it's re reaffirming the primacy of identity. And I think this is this is where it become can become very very dangerous, basically, because 
if you keep saying to people, if we think that economic power is shifting to East Asia, there's been a kind of big shift in the economic in, in the globe. Inflation's still quite high. The cost of living crisis, right? And then within that, the dominant cultural institutions are pushing endless tribal narrative where the, the majority are told that you're scum, you're evil, you'll vote for Brexit, you're racist, you're unreconstructed, you're homophobic, you're transphobic. And those people ultimately, in the last 50 years, have been inclusive, have opened their door to the, to the world's population, basically, right? But no matter what you do, you're still nothing but scum, right? At some point, People are going to turn around and you say, you know what? My kids, I'm, I can't afford to buy a house. My kids are earning uh, a pittance. I, I, in this country is, you know, I'm being told by people uh, constantly, by the BBC and other media outlets, that I am worthless. I don't see myself reflected anywhere. I don't see my concerns or my community concerns reflected anywhere on the media. Uh, I, I, I basically, little more than the shit on the shoe of London metropolitan elites. Basically, that, that really is the kind of dominant narrative. And, and having a false history and a false worldview shoved down my throat and told, if I question any of it, I'm nothing but an unreconstructed scumbag racist. Now, if we keep doing that, if we keep doing that, and we keep having the dislocations in the global economy, and we we have war, we have a whole rising set of issues, I think it's going to go badly wrong. I don't think that that's going to end up in some socialist utopia where we're all kind of diverse and inclusive, corporate imposed. It's not going to end that way. It's going to go really badly wrong. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, yes, I, and, and do you think as well that that the tribalism you mentioned in America undermines claims of, of, of liberal democracy. Do you think Biden, I don't know how, how you feel about the recent persecution of well, what I might call the persecution of Trump and the persecution of basically the whole Trump administration from Steve Bannon to Roger Stone to Peter Navarro to Rudy Giuliani or all the people, at least allies of Trump. Now the persecution of the Proud Boys, whatever you think to them, has been being so extreme with the prison sentences and the whole Jan 6 thing. Does that does that under, undermine America's claims? And and also, does the COVID does the COVID era with lockdowns imported as a policy from China, seemingly, if you believe Neil Ferguson, does that undermine our position as well as exporters of liberal democracy? Well, on the Trump thing, I think that basically, obviously, American politics has become super tribal, uh, and I have not followed uh, the, that the legal aspect of Trump that, that closely. But I think that uh, to, to go after Trump like that wouldn't speak well to uh, domestic um, kind of uh, social cohesion in America. I think it's a very, very dangerous thing to be doing. Right? But then I, I guess from a democratic strategic perspective, it, it, it's kind of, it works for them, right? The persecution narrative works very well because it basically means that Trump's base will become more energized and anybody going after him will become more of a target. So essentially he becomes the, the, the nominee. It's kind of numbers going to point to that a long time ago anyway. 
And I, I guess the Democratic strategist thinks, well, having Trump there is, is, that, is our best bet, basically. It means we're, we're more likely to win. So I guess, I guess strategically on the Democrat side, it kind of, you can see why they've, they've, put, they've pushed this so hard, basically. Um, so, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think it speaks well to social cohesion and sort of to try and de-escalate and find a kind of less tribal way of doing, of doing politics. There was another question you asked me. No, it was just a follow-up. But yeah, because yeah, I was, yeah. my claim was that Biden's, if they're behaving like a banana republic, as many claim, then that, that undermines mm. America's mm. claim to you know, be the example of, of liberal democracy. And the follow-up was about COVID, which could be very much argued that we, we lost that again with a complete abandonment of civil liberties. No, I completely agree. I think I think that COVID period for me was super depressing. Uh, I mean, I, I personally was actually in the, in the Devon countryside, and so I, you know, I could get out, walk in fields and stuff like that. But what, but what was depressing about it politically was uh, that the, the, it kind of brought out that, that really sort of like curtain-twitchy uh, kind of, you know, finger-waggy element. And so much of the British population, I'd like to think that the, the Brits have that kind of cultural DNA deep inside them, you know, of, of like uh, being quite contrarian, quite uh, pugnacious in the defence of freedom, uh, that kind of thing. But there is also the other element of, of British culture where you follow the rules and, and, and very much like... You can sort of like moral policing, very strong in British culture, passive aggressive moral policing. And like, you can't do that. And, 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 and essentially, a lot of Brits go to the post office, right? And you post a package. They, what's in the package? It's like, what the fuck do you want to know that for? What's it got to do with you? So, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of nosiness in this country. I mean, it's, it's when you go, my wife grew up in Australia. She's a Brit from Yorkshire, but she grew up in Australia. What we do here, you, just, you would never get that in Australia. Really, like nosiness and putting your nose into people's business all the time. The, I think the COVID thing was bloody depressing for me because it was. It, I thought, I thought this is bullshit. I mean, lockdown, all these rules, and it was just, it was just completely ridiculous. You know, going to a pub and you walk in the pub with a mask on, and you sit down and have a pint with a mask off. You will go for a piss. You got to put the mask. I mean, it was literally, um, but the problem with the, the COVID thing is it, what it actually did, it really, uh, if you think about it, in the post-war period, we had that, after the Second World War, we had that real, it appealed to one side of the British psyche, you know, the very statist, seeing the state as the parent, telling us what to do, and if anything goes wrong, it's the government's fault, and the government's got to fix it, right? And gradually, that was kind of worked out, a, a greater emphasis on human, on freedom, a greater emphasis on human agency, personal responsibility, right? But the COVID thing, in my opinion, it was depressing because it kind of really spoke to that side of the British psyche, the curtain twitchy, the moral policing. You can't do that because you know the rules don't let you do that. You know, like that. So you, you had that going on, right? Which is very depressing. But it also reignited that that side of the British psyche, where you, the government, you know, it's, it's it's an external agency. The government's got to do it, or you know, oh, it's government's fault. You know what I mean? So I think we, I think we're still in that. We're still kind of in that cultural funk where we've got to basically rediscover our mojo of freedom and personal responsibility and take you know and 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 cracking on with our lives as free people again and i think we've really got to rediscover that we've gone into this kind of like slightly snarky quite pathetic 
moaning and you know i've gone on a bit of a rant now but sorry about that but but do you see what i mean it's kind of like it's a bit like it was that was depressing absolutely no i totally agree and there's just one big area of the book that i haven't touched on i'd like to before you go i mean because i'm not sure how long we've done now because we've had so many tech complications but i just want to ask about the the pmcs which is the professional managerial class it's a big part of the book and there's Mm. two big things i was interested well it's all interesting but one one aspect is the way that they seem to manufacture grievance and then then lo and behold they're the people who there's all these vulnerable groups and then lo and behold they're the ones who have to come and solve it which just as it did in covid actually requires them taking more power for the state so that's a kind of one part of it and then the other thing that's very interesting is where you point out that actually the the the, the sort of populist I don't know what you call it, underclass now, is a kind of counter-revolution against that. So that was really interesting. You I'll give you a quote here. You're talking about America, and you say, middle Americans, as they appear to the PMC, the makers of educated opinion, argues Lash, are hopelessly shabby, unfashionable, and provincial, ill-informed about changes in taste or intellectual trends. They're at once absurd and vaguely menacing, not because they wish to overthrow the old order, but precisely because of their defense of it. And I kind of tried to wrestle with that in my own non-academic way in an article I was writing about being a conservative rebel and I was tackling who I called the new normies, which were the people who I know who were in, you know, Bank of England, uh, think tanks, BBC, and they all think a certain way, it seems, but they're the ones with families and more money and they're the ostensible conservatives or would have been in the past. They're living small C conservative lifestyles, but they have sort of radical left views and then along come the sort of people I seem to identify with more. And we're sort of we're saying, no, we, we want to counter that revolution because the sort of middle managerial class have become the <coughs> radicals. So, yeah, those are the two questions. Like, how does that work? And also, and the other question about this manufacturing of grievances to kind of step in and get more power for yourself. Well, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I, I've always been a natural rebel throughout my life, right? I mean, I've always been a natural rebel. But 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 uh, I think that um, so the, the PMC, the professional managerial class, it kind of draws on a long history. And cut a long story short, it, it's sort of Michael Lynn, Christopher Lash. The there's a great guy as well. He's a law professor at LSE. I think his name's Peter Ramsey. I could have got that wrong, but he's great on Twitter. Uh, he's done some great stuff as well. He's kind of a he's kind of a, a sort of I guess it's kind of a Marxist pro Brexit. But he's done some really, as a Frank Ferrady too, he's done some really interesting work on kind of the politics of vulnerability. Cut a long story short, so the PMC refers to the emergence in the post-war Anglophone economies in particular of this professional managerial class. And they really took off in the 1970s, you had kind of globalisation, this kind of thing, where the traditional uh, centres of authority, institutional authority, increasingly collapsed. And then you, you had the emergence of a new kind of credentialed, educated, uh, overclass, basically, all these professional managerial classes, you know, that ran corporations, ran universities, ran museums, runs the media, blah, 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 right? And so, and so the argument really is this kind of worldview of this, of this PMC is kind of now becomes kind of dominant progressive worldview, but it, it, but it was, it was, it, it's based ultimately on a kind of critique of settled communities, settled norms, social cohesion, national borders, uh, even even the concept of the nation state, which is seen as gauche throwbacks to an earlier period 
unreconstructed uh, throwbacks, basically. And so, and so, and then obviously the luxury belief system of that, i.e., you can pass policies and carry and do things, but you don't ultimately have to suffer the consequences of that. You can, if if immigration becomes uh, a negative uh, in, uh, externality in your in your area, you can move out. Uh, you know, or if crime goes up, you can leave. Or you know you can afford better schools. You see what I mean? So so you can always so essentially you, you can act. There's kind of luxury belief system as well to it. Essentially, the the outcomes of your beliefs or your policies, you don't ultimately have to live with it. So so it's easy to pay lip service then to sort of progressive uh, hegemony, you know, pro diversity. But when it goes wrong, you can sort of leave. Or so so the, so the PMC basically refers to that. It's kind of a it's kind of a it's a new moral economy, and in particular, the way in which uh, you see now a lot of leaders and corporate leaders institutions, the British Museum, National Trust, universities, is that they ultimately appeal to a, to kind of a politics of vulnerability. They basically say, we, we, we derive our, our bureaucratic power and our right to rule through ultimately looking after and, and uh, vulnerable, vulnerable populations, be they ethnic minorities, the trans community, sexual minorities, uh, you know, or, or various vulnerable groups. And so it's it's so essentially a lot a lot of this progressive hegemony then is ultimately the weaponization of, of a kind of politics of vulnerability and morality around that to structure uh, governance systems to maintain power basically. Classic example of that, for example, would be kind of woke capitalism. So you've got sometimes ridiculous examples of like major weapons manufacturers like Rayathon or BAE Systems. Who are basically making cluster munitions or bombs or whatever you know, whatever they make. I don't know what they make. Maybe they don't make cluster or whatever, but you know, making weapon systems ultimately. But then, kind of sponsoring pride, uh, you know, uh, uh, events and stuff like that, you know, and or, or do you see what I mean? So, so it's kind of it, it's it's essentially it's kind of the articulation of a kind of corporate progressivism to virtue signal. To, to sort of structure and, and secure power through a, through a po politics of kind of like a but, but but basically leaves everything intact. It doesn't affect their actual interests, material economic interests or corporate power interests. It doesn't affect that at all. But essentially, it makes the right signals. It signals the right type of things. But in in that machine, in that in that grill, in that kind of mincing machine, are settled communities are. The people that don't want open borders, that don't want mass immigration in their communities, that don't necessarily share the progressive dogma that progressives share, or or or, or even if they share it. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a very socially liberal guy, right? But I don't want uh, corporations to tell me what to think. I it goes back to the point about about what we about, about the demographic representation on TV. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm I grew up in Hackney, very most one of the most diverse places you could possibly imagine, right? But I don't want to have uh, corporations forcing their, their worldview, their, their ideological worldview on, on me, do you see what I mean? And then telling me, if I don't accept their bullshit, that I'm somehow some moral monster or I'm somehow beyond the pale or, or, or other, other members of, of, of this country are beyond the pale, do you see what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think it's that. It's a kind of corporate imposition of a ruling class ideology. Now, uh, basically, of, of kind of like... EDI, you know, equality, diversity, inclusion, 
it's it's that it's it's not so much the values themselves or per se or diversity itself. It's the imposition of it, the corporate imposition of an ideology that people should resist. Yeah, and there were so many things I wanted to ask about. I mean, there's the by the way on the luxury beliefs. We saw the Democrat woman the other day who who called to de- dismantle the police in Minneapolis but then got assaulted mm. in front of her children and mm. then said, we need to take back the city. We need to please. She went full Robocop law and order. It'd be interesting to see if that happens, if more and more, you know, things go wrong in the well, West. Well, well, I, I've said for a long time, right, and I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in this, and that, and that is essentially what you should do is you, you should democratise accountability, right? So I, I grew up in Hackney in East London. For, I was living for 20, 24 years, born, bred in Hackney in East London. Very poor, very multicultural, very, very multiracial, very diverse, right? Now, if people basically say, for example, you'll get sort of Hampstead liberals that will, that will today, right now, will be looking at um, Suella Braverman and saying, it's absolutely disgusting and, you know, stop the boats and it's disgusting, it's racist, blah, blah, blah. And I think, I think, I think what would be fair is this. Essentially, if that's how you feel, and you should you should ultimately absorb, absorb absorb both the negative and positive positive results of your of your positionality of your position. So basically, have massive refugee centres. I'm not saying refugees are bad for a second, but essentially, if they if they're brought in and put into desperately already overcrowded, desperately poor areas, right where people are, are crammed in like uh, you know sardines kind of areas that I grew up in, really poor, poor working class communities that have been shit on by the ruling class for centuries. Look at Victorian England, slums, right? Okay, so basically, so instead of Bungham in Hackney or, or Swindon or uh, Dover or other places like poor places, put let's put them into Henley. Let's put them into Hampstead. You see what I mean? It's like essentially... If that's your position, and that's that's potentially an entirely fair enough position, you should be the one, you and your kin and your community should be the one that accepts both the positive and, and negative externalities of that decision making process. Yeah. And that's fair. I think that's I think that's very fair. Wasn't it the Martha's Vineyard where they the migrants arrived and they quickly yeah. got rid of them in America? That, that that was a, that that was a great idea. I think DeSantis did that. Yeah. He's from Florida, right? He, he shipped loads up there, right? And I think I think that's a great idea. I think that that should happen all the time, basically. If if you have a kind of like democratic mandate, for say you get an area, right, of like liberal Democrat waving refugees are welcome here. And again, this isn't a critique in refugees at all. But I think it's in terms of democratic accountability, it'd be entirely fair enough to say that's that's great. You the majority of you want refugees. Boom! Let's get this hotel. Let's requisition this park. Let's get some stuff built here. Bosh! That, there you go. I mean, I think that's fair because what's ultimately happening is basically a lot of this stuff chips out the tongue, you know. And on campuses, you know, in very safe middle class or bourgeois spaces, you can say anything you like because ultimately the the externalities and the costs of that, you don't really bear them. Yeah, basically, you don't bear them because. You don't live that, so, but but so put your basically put, essentially put your money where your mouth is. You should have democratic accountability. If majority in an area say we want this progressive policy, then they should essentially absorb the costs of that, both positive and negative, of that progressive policy. 
Yeah, I I um I was making a fairly Tory complaint about the social housing kids that were screaming <laughs> constantly, just for, went on for months in where I live. And I said to one of the sort of uh, extended blob normies in my football team, but I was complaining about it. He said, oh, social housing is a good thing. You know, it's important. And I was like, how come you don't live next to it then? And then I actually got them to admit that they believe in it, but they don't want to live next to it. They literally then admitted that. (laughs) Well, 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 I I mean, I I grew up in Hackney, right? And what I tended to see quite a lot was like educated middle class types who who basically most of my my friends in the end, you know, as I kind of, I grew up very poor, but you know, but did a degree, but that was my milieu. And what would invariably happen is they were like the classic liberal, you know, sort of not, you know, immigration and diversity. And, you know, again, I'm not judging any of that, right? But as soon as the shit hit the fan, or as soon as the, 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 the rubber hit the road in relation to that, invariably their children going to school at 11, the secondary school was always a bit of a tipping point. Bosh, what would they do? They'd leave. They'd go out, they'd move out to the countryside or to sort of, nicer cities quote unquote uh bath bristol you know, and, oh it's better for the kids they've got nice no see what i mean mm-hmm. so essentially this goes back to this thing where it, 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 you know it's very easy to sort of this stuff trips off your tongue uh but um i just think i believe i'm a democrat i'm a you know i believe <laughs> in democracy and accountability and if that's where you are stop dumping this onto poor working class communities people have had enough and it's not going to end well take it take some yourself take it in Hampstead take it in Henley on Thames wherever these areas are that say this is wonderful and you know then you should absorb the cost of that stop dumping it on poor communities because that's what's happening yeah and we've got too much to go into but I also wondered on the woke capital thing if that was a sort of smoke and mirrors in the wake of 2008 and the Occupy movement you know the, the fact that it's it's not radical. As Wesley Yang says here, it's profoundly anti-radical while posing as oppositional. This is perhaps one of the reasons why multinational corporations have widely adopted it, <coughs> meaning this, this ideology of this, this fake virtue signaling. But is that, do you think that's what it is? It's like, stay away from our actual money, and, you know, but we'll just throw you the idea of diversity or something. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean after I finished writing the book, I mean, uh, I kind of talk about world capitalism in the book, right? But I, I, I sort of picked up that... Um, that that idea that essentially in 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 the face of the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was kind of was a kind of more of an OG Marxist type movement, right? It was a critique of capitalism and the, and in that you know material interests of of and it was a big critique of that. Suddenly it switched, right? And the left and the Democrat left then started pushing a narrative, this intersectional narrative about identity. So it kind of switched away from uh, uh, from a critique of capitalism, ultimately, and, corp- and corporations to suddenly corporations now championing this kind of more intersectional ideology about identity. Very easy. So I think I think there is something something in that Wesley Yang's point, basically, in that and that is a lot of this intersectional ideology <coughs> is kind of a smokescreen. It's a way in which uh, you know corporations etc. have kind of <coughs> sort of bait and switch bait and switch basically. Away from there, because ultimately, what what is it? I mean, what is it? It doesn't affect. It's not. It doesn't affect things. In the material interest of corporations, or it's not. It's not a radical re- revolutionary movement in any way, is it? What, what does it ultimately want? What it basically wants, if you, if you scratch it, a lot of the intersectional stuff away, what it's really about is about uh, uh, EDI, it calls the diversity and inclusion, 
uh, uh, consultancies making money in the public sector. That's pretty much a big, big chunk of it. Uh, it's about EDI uh, merchants in, in institutions, ultimately. Uh, and what, what, what does it, what does it want? What does it, what, 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 it doesn't seem to have any kind of demands or essentially it's, it's, a, it's about the, the continued abasement of uh, the UK, continued denigration of the UK, and then kind of various interlocutors, moral interlocutors and, and consultants making money, going on a BBC News, being paid a, a big fee, invariably also drawn from elite families. Uh, uh, themselves from India, from uh, Nigeria. Nigeria. I mean, there's very examples I can think of right now. I mean, one of the, the I can't remember her name, but she's so uh, she's, Dr. She's Shola. From, well, uh, uh, allegedly, I think if you go to a website, she's actually uh, Nigerian royalty. So that's odd because basically, <laughs> so what you've got is you've got Nigeria, a very interesting, incredible country. I mean, I've taught so many Nigerian students, right? Incredible country itself, very diverse, Yoruba, Igbo. Christian, uh, uh, Muslim, uh, rural, urban, right? But Nigeria itself is, is Dahomey and, and Sokoto, I think, were both located in what is now modern-day Nigeria, both slave uh, kingdoms, right? So essentially, if you're from if you're from Nigeria, I'm not saying she is, but if one looked into it, if you're if you're from Nigerian royal lineage, that's probably somewhere along the line somebody. A, a little while back was owning slaves so do you see what i mean so so essentially so it, it's a it's an odd one it's, i'm not saying she she did that i don't know i don't know but i think it says on our own website she's from uh from royalty right does it does it no, I, I think, think it's it a well-known fact i'm pretty sure we're okay with that i think that's pretty much a fact a known fact i think we're all right i'm not sure if it says on. i don't go on a website too much so i'm not, <laughs> not sure if it's on there no 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 yeah so 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 so, so it's odd then isn't it it's kind of it has you have often people uh, drawn from elite families who have had incredible educations, private school educations from royalty in some instances. Uh, but apparently, you know, that, that telling a generic category of whiteness, kids from council estates and social housing in Hull, yeah, or up north or wherever, Hackney, Somehow, they're, they're kind of a, a lower, more, in, in, more slightly more inferior moral individual because of the color of their skin or because of their whiteness. It's a very, very odd situation. Yeah, and just one more question on these PMCs because I'm I, 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 I'm fascinated with it. Which is, you say here that Goodhart characterizes this meaning this kind of PMC type situation as the divide oh, and the divide as a new divide between the anywheres who have who have achieved identities derived from their careers and education, and the somewheres who get their identity from a sense of place and the people around them. So I have a two-part question on this. So one is, what do you posit as an alternative? Because Scruton proceeds from the primacy of place, and obviously the opposite to that is these globalist anywhere people. But I do have a sort of... I am wondering, because some people say that the kind of liberalism you espouse in the book, stemming from the Enlightenment, kind of is inherently tied to this man of anywhere persona, that so once so once you start talking about the primacy of place, you're sort of into conservatism. So my question is: one is your response to this a conservative one? Is it a liberal? One? What is and what is your exact response to it? And and two is in the light of a Starmer tweet that just came out as we record. Keir Starmer: Labour will restore the security of Britain's borders. So my follow-up question is: Will the PMCs, in light of migration illegal and legal and and the population being so against it basically 
Will they have to pivot and stop being these borderless citizens of everywhere? Or is he just basically lying? So that's my two-part question. It's quite a big one. Yeah, that, that's a massive one. So <laughs> basically, I, I mean, the, the liberal versus conservative thing is something I, I, I do grapple with. I mean, um, I, it's, it's a big one because the, I, I argue for uh, liberalism. I don't argue for liberalism per se, but I think that the, the minimally the grounds of kind of uh, rational adjudication, the primacy of, of, of like of rationality, and in, and in particular that 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 kind of struggle for to overcome inherent tribalism is a, is a really important thing. It's, it's kind of a, it's a grounding framework for uh, for human civilization. Um, so I think that 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 is quite important. Uh, that is quite important. Terms of like how we kind of proceed from that. Uh, that's kind of um, what was the, the Starmer, the Starmer one. Yeah, the Starmer point is just that will the the globalist anywhere man have to kind of pivot in his rhetoric in order to win an election uh, towards being you know because he says he's going to control borders today. I don't believe him because it goes against his whole ethos, his whole voting base. But will that ethos and voting base have to shift? Well, I, I think Starmer's clearly he he kind of he wants to nod towards obviously uh, immigration sentiment is very strong in the UK and he, and he wants to sort of shore up that that the weaknesses of of Labour on that on that part. I don't think I don't think Starmer will do much at all. I don't think he'll do much at all. Basically, my take on Starmer is I think that what he'll do is he'll do everything possible to obviously pushes back into the the orbit of the EU ultimately. Yeah, and you know what? I've oh. and, I, and I and I think everything will be will become. I mean, if I was if, if I was Starmer, right? I think that I don't agree with this, right? But I, I kind of think this is a sensible strategy. Is what I would do if I was Starmer, right? So he gets into power in twenty twenty four. The the economy will most probably be in a much better shape by then. Inflation will be chased out. There may be some degree of resolution on the Ukraine crisis. I think that uh, the economy will be will be doing better, uh, that kind of thing. And so he's, he's just got to sort of stumble along to some extent. And I think if I if I was Starmer, I think there's a lot of votes in uh, in, in kind of saying, well, uh, post twenty twenty eight, if you vote for me, I will do I will do that refer that second referendum on EU membership. Uh, and I think I think I think that would be quite a sense. That's very popular amongst the Labour base. It's very popular amongst the country. There's a lot of uh, stuff laid at the door of Brexit. There's a lot of people that kind of want to re obviously rejoin the EU. Um, and I think that and people say well, that, that wouldn't happen because you'd have you have to accept the euro and you'd go in on those kind of terms. And even people within the EU, EU say, well, we don't want you back, blah blah blah. But you, they kind of, I mean, I can't. Just on a, on a purely sort of structural, gravitational basis, the UK is one of the major powers and major economies in the European space, right? So, and it'd be a major political coup of the, of the EU, wouldn't it? To say, basically, a great country like the UK has voted for Brexit, it took that decision, and it's been an absolute clusterfuck to the extent that 10 years down the line, they're begging us now not to come back in and because it's the uk and because it's a unique circumstance we can we'll, we'll do a deal with the uk basically because 
whereby they, they kind of rejoin, but on, on a kind of sort of vaguely similar basis. I think accepting the euro would be a step too far. I, I think that would most probably lose the, elect, lose the referendum. But I can see how Starmer would warm those relationships up, not diverge from the regulatory orbit of the EU, with great, with a greater sort of you know incorporation into that, and and say, well, look, you know, if you vote second election twenty twenty eight onwards, if you vote me in power, I will do another referendum on the EU, and and I think and I think that that would be quite a powerful package. Yeah, and that is what they believe. The people I've spoken to in what I call the extended blob and the Bank of England, these type of places, they say Starmer's going to get in, he's going to rejoin the EU. And this is an article of religious faith in them. This is the second coming to them. That's how I see it. It'd be nice to just think Starmer's going to fix everything. What a simplistic worldview, but that's what they believe. So, um, all right, because we've taken up so much of your time because we had so many tech problems. Let's just, do, let's just end and do one last question. In a way, your whole book is answered to this, but what I like to ask on the podcast is how do we win... The culture war. In your book, you define the culture war. You say, in short, the culture war is waged by technocratic elites against ordinary people. It is, in fact, in fact, and outcome, a form of status class war designed to maintain power through manipulating a politics of grievance and bureaucratic mission. So that's a sort of definition of it. But how do we win this thing? Well, I, I think that there are various ways of doing it. Right or I mean, what would victory look like? I mean, I, I, even that, I the to the left say, oh, the Tories. The left narrative on the culture war, to quite a large extent, is that the Tories have been fighting this culture war right, to distract from and to divide the divide the working class. Okay, that that's kind of you know. So it's got ephemeral issues about culture. To divide, to divide the working class and to sort of, it's kind of like false consciousness, right? So basically, the, the working class is this homogenous blob, right? And essentially, they have these innate objective material interests inherent to the overthrow of capitalism ultimately and the socialist future. If only they could see that and like the, 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 the evil capitalist wall could fall from their eyes and the cultural nonsense could fall from their eyes, basically. But that's not how humankind works. Basically, we don't define ourselves by you know, we define ourselves in multiple ways in, in communities, in families, in nations. Just so, 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 so they argue that the, the Tories have been fighting this nefarious culture war, while obviously pushing the envelope on so many issues. The trans issue is an obvious one, basically, and it has all kinds of quite interesting quote unquote implications, right? But for women's safety, all the rest of it. We know, we know the arguments. But my point is this. It's absolute nonsense the Tories have been fighting a culture war. Right? There is one major vector in the culture war. You know you, you, know you see this all the time, Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph. Equality officer in the NHS paid 80 grand a year. It's a, it's a nightmare. Ah, oh, equality officer, EDI, blah, 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 blah. You see it all the time, right? It's all bullshit. Why is it all bullshit? Because basically, all those organisations, rightfully, will turn around and say, "Well, you know what? We have to employ EDI people, this kind of new commissaire, moral commissaire class within our institutions, because of the Equality Act. The Equality Act, Public Sector Equality Duty in Section One Four Nine, basically mandates public sector bodies to promote equality of opportunity amongst and to." And to and, People of protected characteristics, racial characteristics, sexuality, disability, etc. Right? 
so the PSED, the Public Sector Equality Duty, and and Section One Four Nine of that basically mandates. It says it says that these institutions have to basically just to discharge their legal duty has to basically uh, promote harmony amongst people for these protected characteristics. So they have to employ EDI officers to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so my point is this: that Equality Act and all the kind of stuff, you know, the unconscious bias, the microaggression stuff. That's also because of the Equality Act, because basically it says employers have a duty of care and to, to promote harmony. How do they do that? They, they offer these training courses. They, they can anti-racism programming, anti-sexism, pride. So that, that's one of the key ways it is done, right? So and the Equality Act was passed in the last three months of the, of the Blair government. So the, the Tories have been in now, what, for 14 odd years? So you've had this this kind of legal social value law on the books called the Equality Act, and it sat there for fourteen years. This has been the large the legal basis upon which uh, intersectional activists and the takeover of British institutions. It's, it goes back to this to this to the Equality Act, right? To leave it unreformed has basically been a massive own goal. So the idea that the Tories have been fighting a, a, a culture war. When the Labour government last three months passed Equality Act and they've left it completely alone, they've not gone near it, right? It's an absolute joke. So this is why when you see Suella Braverman or Kemi Badnock or anybody banging on about, oh, you know, Suella Braverman does it all the time, right? There's some sort of a diversity thing. Oh, the police shouldn't be doing this. The police shouldn't be doing that. That is part of the kind of bullshit Tory culture war because they know that the police have to do that because of the public sector equality duty, Section 1 and the Equality Act. And, they've got, and then they haven't gone near that law. It was a Trojan horse law, right? And they haven't gone anywhere near it to reform it. The absent, I've said this all along, absent the reform of that by the Tory government, this idea that they're fighting a culture war is an absolute nonsense. Yeah, no, absolute gaslighting, absurd, absurdity. They've not fought the culture war at all. Cameron sees himself and saw himself as the heir to Blair, so why would he want to? Yep. The simple answer is the Tories believe in the, the views of New Labour and believe in this stuff. And, and then and then you've got people like Carrie Johnson, right, who was uh, dancing the night away uh, at, the, at the Tory conference uh, by a drinks event sponsored by um, Stonewall. You know, so, so then you've got these very, very powerful ch charities that have also operationalised and weaponised the Equality Act basically as a business model right we're here to advise you public sector uh, bodies and institutions as to how you carry out and meet your legal requirements and under the equality act and this is this is where it gets really dodgy is essentially if you look at the act itself it, it mandates equality of opportunity but what's actually happened is there's been a complete elision between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome so essentially uh if there's a goes back to our original point right if there's a differential outcome it's proof of systemic discrimination. Therefore, you're not re meeting your, your requirements under the Equality Act. Therefore, you're in legal breach. Therefore, you've got to pay Stonewall or Advance HE or the Race Equality or whatever you, yeah, to come in and tell you how, how to basically meet your legal duties. Then you get activists within the institutions that love all this stuff anyway. Then you get consultants that make loads of money out of it. Bosh, you're done. So in short, the way to win would be to actually tackle legislation like the Equalities Act. I think basically the way to win would be number one. You'd have to you'd have to reform the Equalities Act. 
I think maybe a new law, anti-discrimination law, essentially strips out the subjective elements. I would behold a subjective elements inequality act and then strips out and, and or, or minimally reaffirms equality of opportunity and not outcomes, basically. It has to be, the Tories won't go near it because, because it's called the Equality Act. Oh, the Tories, nasty party, they're going after equality. Going, oh. So that's what, the optics are bad, right? So, so yeah, there has to be something along, that, along those kind of lines. And then other key vectors in the culture war, like the BBC, right? The BBC basically is completely democratically unaccountable, right? Minimally in a market environment, if people don't like what you're pumping out or like your show, they can switch off and go elsewhere, right? I pay for Netflix. I pay, for, you know, I like to watch some Netflix, right? If I don't like it, I think it's crap. I stop paying it, and then and, and so so to some extent, it reflects a market sentiment. BBC doesn't have that, and the BBC has really been a key vector also in this, right? This kind of like uh, I used to read the BBC, BBC website, but. Stop! I don't, don't. I haven't looked at it about eight years now. I used to go there. And every article was kind of like racism or sexism or homophobia, and it, it's like ubiquitous, you know. And, and then you look at the actual data on norms and the opinion poll amongst the British people. It's just like, well, how, it's just it's it's kind of like a it's a kind of it's a, it's a, it's basically like a psyops. It's like a gas. It's endless gaslighting, you know. It's an endless gaslight ultimately. But I think I think so. I think basically, what has to happen is major reform of the BBC. What I'd like to see with the BBC is essentially you do away completely with the uh, teletax. Maybe bring one or two channels in to under general taxation, high quality channels. Basically, really, you know, high quality programming, factual documentary, really interesting stuff that people want to watch. Blah blah blah. Right. And then what they'll also do is then it will level, the, the, it will drive out the cultural imperialism of the BBC because there's a massive opportunity cost, isn't there, about through BBC cultural imperialism, i.e. if they keep, you know, they've got, they've got like undemocratic uh, uh, money, endless amounts of taxpayers' money, essentially so new radio stations, uh, new TV shows. So essentially startups can't operate in that space because the BBC blob is there already colonising that space. To, it, it actually leads to, in my opinion, the kind of cultural degradation. You know, so new entrants to the market can't because the BBC is, is, has a monopoly. You know, the, the, all this, all the radio shows they've got. I mean, how many bloody radio shows have the BBC got? Why, why not have like you know, you see what I mean? So they can't compete. So I think, I think stuff like that. I think there's a whole range of things you can do, but I think reform of the Equality Act it was fundamental. That's why the Tories haven't been fighting the cultural war. That's bollocks. They have not been fighting the culture war. They've been they've been sort of doing headline whack-a-mole bullshit, basically. Swella Braverman and others just like, yeah, 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 uh, BBC uh, diversity. It's rubbish. So and and because they haven't they haven't got the guts they haven't got the guts or the wherewithal necessary to do that. I, and I and I think that that and then BB, and then and then ultimately yeah, media reform. I think that that's what you need too. BBC etc. I think I'm, I say, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I think about a Democrat accountability and a kind of North Korea telly type tax situation, which throws invariably 70% of all prosecutions are, are, are women, young, uh, often single mums. I, say, I can't remember, over 100,000 100, people a year get done by the BBC. You can't have that. I mean, you know, it's just, it's completely undemocratic. And then, uh, so I just think, you know, stuff like that, basic stuff should, should be done. To ultimately to, to democratize and to return to a kind of more equal before the law type system, not a subjective 
microaggressions, policing our thoughts, policing our unconscious biases has been operationalized by the Equality Act and activists dancing on that act. All right, brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Doug, for all your time. I know it got quite epic because we had some tech issues. Sorry if it bothers the listener. Hopefully it's all all right. And where can people find you? My only social media is Twitter, and I'm at ProfDWS. At ProfDWS on Twitter, or yeah, X, I, as we now have to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course, the book Against Decolonization should be out when this is released. Hopefully, this will be released on Friday, 15th of September. That's when the book's out, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Highly recommended. Everyone should get the book, and I think it's going to be. I think it's going to do really well. I mean, you've, you've had great reviews already, haven't you? I have had some great reviews, spectator and critic, and hopefully I'll get a few more. All right. Brilliant. Thanks so much for doing the show. Thank you, Nick. Well, that was Professor Doug Stokes. Hope you enjoyed it. Epic length to the podcast, partly because we restarted after some tech problems, so it felt like a whole new podcast, but we just kept it all. And partly just because this book's so interesting and there were so many things I wanted to ask. So definitely buy the book, Against Decolonization. And if you want to support this podcast, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon. You can leave me a digital coffee there and leave a comment and I'll reply to all of them. Buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon to support the current thing. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>